and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith, and thank you for listening. David is not here. Well, not the David that you know. It's a different David, but we're going to talk to him in a moment. Uh, the actual David, the real David, uh, is at Sundance right now, as is uh, our uh, editor-at-large, Scott Nye. Uh, and you can, and David is cranking out the reviews of the films that he's seen. So you can check those out uh, at battleshippretension.com. Uh, friend of the show, Jason Eakin, uh, has finally posted his uh, movie uh, Desk Job, his short film starring Pat Healy, and among others, uh, the, the, the voice of Bill Dwyer. So that is also available at battleshippretension.com. And I enjoy it quite a bit. I think it's uh, it's very funny and it's very dark and very depressing. Everything that you want when you see a movie. Uh, also, I wanted to let everybody know that the BP nominations have been announced. You can find those also on the website. And then the ceremony itself in which we announce the winners will not go up until mid to late February. I forget the exact date, but that will be up later. And so in the meantime, check out the nominations on the website and feel free to weigh in on uh, what you think we, we snubbed. Uh, and I will say there is one category where I I believe there's one category where there are six nominees instead of five, which is Best Director. And that's because there was a tie for that fifth slot. And so rather than pick one, we decided like we will honor the uh, the various contributors and we would uh, nominate them both so that they're so we didn't have to choose between uh, uh, Chanwick Park or Park Chanwick, pardon me, and uh, Martin Scorsese. So I don't think either of them are going to win because... You know, they were tied for the fifth slot. But at the same time, who's to say in today's workaday world? Um, so I think that's uh, that and, and then various other things, including uh, the various uh, members of the fleet are all available at battleshippretention.com. Please uh, check it out. Um, We've said it before and said it somewhat recently. Uh, I'm often very proud of the of the stuff that we put out on the website and uh, the frequency with which we put stuff out. So uh, please uh, check that out because that survey that we put out shows that not many of you think of Battleship Pretension as a website. So we're going to try and change that by uh, well by playing to you know the, those of you that think it's only a podcast. Um, so I think that is it as far as announcements. I did want to let everybody know that this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Now, in honor of the late William Peter Blatty, right now Mubi is showing his 1980 film, The Ninth Configuration, which I unfortunately have not seen. It looks it looks absolutely insane, which is delightful. Uh, Mubi describes it as wildly indulgent, pulpy, and ambitious. I feel like indul wildly indulgent, I feel like ambitious is implied usually, but not always. Uh, so check out Blatty's. This is his film debut. He also went, in, went on to direct the third uh, ex uh, Exorcist film, which I actually haven't seen, but I've seen that clip of uh, George C. Scott getting very angry about something not being in the file. Not. Um... So, uh, and then uh, it is described as it features even more questions about God and his relationship to the world. Um, and then there is a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for one month. Just go to Mubi.com, that's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now. And I should say that uh, our guest today did exactly that. He, uh, he told me earlier that he took full advantage of our free month uh, and uh, he's going he's gonna to re-up 
very soon, eventually. Uh, and he's excited to do so because there's another uh, series of films, right? Uh, yes, a okay. series of five. A series of five films that are available. A quintet, movie. if you will, to coin a phrase. Oh, did you come up with that? I did. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, okay, so you might have heard, well, I did just ask him, so you did hear his voice, uh, although based on the sound check, you might not have, uh, because he's apparently very shy, suddenly. Um, but I want to, b- before we, we introduce him, uh, I want to introduce what this is going to be. So... Uh, Eventually, everybody I come in contact with that is even mildly associated with film uh, will be invited to be on the show because the fewer episodes we have to actually program, the better. If we can just shift it to an interview with someone that's even vaguely interesting, which is kind of the subtitle of this episode, um, then <laughs> then that's that is what we will do. So. As listeners know, I am at UCLA now. I'm in my second quarter, uh, and it's I, I'm loving it. I'm having a lot of fun. I'm learning a lot, uh, and I've met a number of people, uh, whether they be uh, professors or other members of uh, what's called a cohort, which uh, I think I've described as the people that are sort of in my class. Uh, not obviously each individual class, but the about fifteen people. Would you say maybe even fewer, twelve, something like that? Um, so Although technically, the- we're in different cohorts. Oh, because you're a PhD, PhD you student, it, yeah, right. But, but we all now. showed up at the same time. We did. So, uh, so yeah. Um, so I wanted to have uh, those people on this show one at a time, and I was trying to think, well, what are we going to call that? And then I got it. Uh, this is kicking off a series that, honestly, it's not going to pick up again until after the uh, uh, all the awards coverage is over. But uh, and it's something we'll do from time to time. But it's called uh, the BP Master Class because even though, as stated, my guest is getting his PhD, I'm getting my master's, and I'm hosting this fucking show. So it's called the BP Master Class. Uh, so I'm going to introduce uh, the very first guest as a function of that. His name is Dave Platt. Dave, how you doing? I'm doing great. Okay, that's Thanks good. for having me. Now, what is that charming accent? I'm sure everybody's just melting and saying, like, who's that charming son of a bitch that Tyler has had on that he is smothering uh, with his own ridiculous game show host voice? Now, where are you from, Dave? I'm from South Africa. South Africa. Although my accent is a bit all over the place. Okay. Which is fun because no one can imitate it, but people do try all yeah. the time. I tried, and I and I very quickly arrived in Australia, oh, which yeah. you are not from. I am not, curiously enough. And you've never lived there. And I've never lived there. Yeah, so that's there's why a, I stopped trying to imitate There's a little it. bit of English in there because I did live in London for a little bit. Mm-hmm. But really, you know, I lived in London for approximately 23 years less than I lived in South Africa, so it really shouldn't be as even a spread as it is. Must have really made an impact on you. That or I'm just a pretentious twat. Hey, see? Okay, here we are. Not merely using the word twat, but saying twat. <laughs> see, there's that, that's, uh, that's why we had you on the show. We enjoy uh, various accents, and we don't get to hear them very often. We've had, an, uh, we've had a Canadian accent with uh, Will Anderson. We did have a, a full-on, a real Australian accent, not this fake one that you do. Um, sorry, the fake one that I do as I try to imitate your actual <laughs> accent. Um, do people... Uh, do people know where you're from immediately, or do they just assume you're from England? Uh, most, a lot of people ask, but recently I was 
very encouraged that two people in one day got it. Wow. Two people I met in a row went with South Africans. So I will say that when I first heard it, and we'll move on from your accent, though I'm sure you've gotten used to talking about it. Um, on this show, I mean. Yes. Uh, if we have you on again, we will start with that again. Uh, well, just maybe so people next get time I'll it. come in with a different one. I'll bring sure. in sort of a, you know, uh, maybe a Scottish, something like sure. that. Sure. You know, let's mix it up a little bit. Maybe like a, not merely Scottish, but maybe like a Sean Connery type Scottish. Okay. Just slip into that from time to All time. All right, yeah. So, can you do a Sean Connery Scottish right now? Well, I don't know if I can try and do that. Oh, there we go. It's just okay. No, that was terrible. I don't know. I can work on it. I can work on it. It's yeah. always any excuse to rewatch uh, his series of James Bond. Now, would you include Never Say Never Again in that? Because I know it's a, a little bit off the, I, the beaten well, path. That depends if you mean include. If we're talking, you know, the Sean Connery James Bonds, no, I would not. Okay. But if I were to rewatch them, I would rewatch it. Yeah. But I'd rewatch it separately once I was done with the rest. Now... Are you bothered by the fact that he won an Oscar for his uh, wonderful Irish accent in The Untouchables that he does not even attempt? Uh, I'm not really, no. Okay. <laughs> I think it's a great performance, and I love that movie. Yeah. So it's just, it's so over the top. I mean, he doesn't care, and who am I to tell him to care? Yeah. I don't think a, he ever cared about anything. I think I would prefer, that is probably true. Um, I think I would actually prefer that he not attempt it than try to attempt it and fail. Um, yes, maybe. I don't know. I, I, I feel like an actor has to have a certain degree of self-awareness, not necessarily self-consciousness, but self-awareness. And knowing that like, you know, I'll do a terrible Sean Cut. It's like, Look, I can't do I can't do an Irish accent. I, see, I went Irish just then, trying to do Scottish. That was a better um, Irish accent than, <laughs> and, than now Sean, my Sean Oscar. Connery. You know, admittedly, that took about three seconds, but still. Um, and yeah, that's something that bothered me a lot when I was younger. Uh, when to me, like, well, you should be able to do the accent, and if you can't do the accent, then why are you getting an Oscar? And you realize, like, oh, right, there's you know emotions to a character as well, and he hits that. I mean, solid. I still think it's a legitimate gripe. Sure. It's a bit of a double think. I'm able to hold in my mind the fact yeah. that he really should have done better, but at the same time that I also don't care. Yeah. I also don't care for the film. Really? Yeah, I don't like oh, it Oh, I'm much. a big fan of it. I'm not such a De Palma guy, but I really like that movie. Yeah, it's. it might be, honestly, that I've... I don't know if I would say I am a De Palma guy, but I've come to appreciate him more since I last saw the film. Um, and so I think if I were to watch again, I might have more of an appreciation for it. I do think it's a subpar David Mamet. Um, I think that's true. Which is uh, which is a bummer because like you've got him writing for gangsters and old timey uh, FBI agents. Come on. Yeah. Bob is pretty great, though. I called him Bob. We're on abbreviated terms. It took me a moment to realize who you were talking about. Then once I realized it, I hated you all over again. <laughs> so, uh, listeners, it took very little time for, for Dave and I in school to develop a rapport where I essentially talk about how much I hate him. And uh, That's all right. But that's all right because, you know, because... Uh, you're you're very po you're very popular in class. Everybody likes you because oh, stop it, you. What's you know? It's uh, everyone's like everyone says, Dave. What do you think? That is true. They do say that. Yeah, just like out of but it's usually like I like this shirt, Dave. What do you think? <laughs> so um, anyway, but enough about your adorable accent. Uh, let's Thank find you. out more about you. That's in fact what this episode is, is going to be about is finding out about, um, who you are and also just being a film lover in other cultures. Uh, sure. not even purely 
like even even uh, listeners that I've that I've met, um, like I met a, li- a listener in Switzerland, and I've talked to uh, several listeners that are uh, British, and I met some in New Zealand, and so it would seem that well, it's all Western culture. It's it's probably similar, but it really is not. Uh, each country and certainly each continent seems to have its own film watching culture. Um, so I'm, I'm always interested in what the differences are, but I'm interested in what the similarities are as well. Um, because eventually everybody sort of arrives at the same movies as these are amazing. Um, but there are, there are certain films that I know you find fascinating that very few people even think about or bother with, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So let's, uh, let's, uh, let's go back. Uh, how old are you? I am 25. 25. <laughs> <laughs> I, I even said it trying to let you down easy. No, I know. It always, uh, I knew it was coming. If, in, it would somehow. Help, if it would help, I can be 25 and a half. Sure. When is your birthday? It's in April. So April. I'm, I'm closer to being 20, to turning 26 than I am to having turned 25. Fair enough. So if that does it for you. I'm a month away from 35. So well, nine years is what it's going to be. Yeah. Which is very, uh, very strange. And you're one of the older people. Uh, people i know in the uh, in the cohort everyone else is like 23 well of the masters people yeah but in the sure P- from my my sort of cohort the phd people i'm the youngest by yeah. quite a few years you're the young upstart something like that that's how i think of myself sure do you when say I, that i say that to myself when i psych myself up in the mirror in the morning i say young upstart <laughs> i just say it until i'm you know really feel it and then sure I go out and then you know once you show up in class you're like dumping everybody's books and stuff <laughs> yeah something like so. that <laughs> Nerd. Yeah, snatching people's uh, pizza off their plate and eating it because, you know. Well, I am liable to do that. I could see that. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so you're 25. So let's see. The math is what? 91? 91. 91. Okay. That's a wonder. That's a good movie year. I it think. is a very good movie year. Um, is that a thing that you that you think when someone says the year they are born, do you immediately think of like four or five oh, yes. movies from that year? Yeah, okay. instantly. Well, yeah. I think of I think of the movies that came out in that year, you know, but I also think of the Oscars in that year. Sure. So with me, it's like, oh, you know, God damn it, Dances with Wolves. When? But that's true. That's the Oscars in that year, yeah. but not the Oscars for that year. I guess. So I, guess I look at true. it that way. All right. Well, in that case, I'm doing pretty good. You, one of the big, one of the only three. That's true. To, yeah. to win the big five. Possibly, possibly. Well, I don't know if I'm going to split hairs and say my least favorite of the three, but it probably is. But it is a great movie. It was one of those movies that was one of the first ones they played for us going to university to study film because it's such an easy movie to teach because silence of the lambs which by the way i don't know if we should say that that's what we're talking about yeah and we also haven't said what the other what the three that we're talking about are so uh i guess i'll say that now so uh we are talking about one of the three movies to win best picture director actor actress and screenplay yes the first was it happened one night uh my dad's favorite film and then there was 1975 there was one flew of the cuckoo's nest and then in 91 there was uh silence of the lambs yeah and you know it's interesting. It won't happen this year, but it could. There's so much goodwill towards La La Land, and there is a genuine chance that Emma Stone could win Best Actress. I think she will. You think she will? I. You know what? There was a stage where I thought it would be Natalie Portman. Yeah. And part of that I think is wishful thinking because she should. Because she's, she's marvelous. She's just incredible in that movie, but. Uh, the more time goes by, the Oscars love sort of young actresses with kind of these m- big 
performances that really carry yeah. films and the the movie really does rest on her uh, it does so more so than on ryan gosling which is yeah. which surprised me going I mean, he has in. broader shoulders so you know that might have made yeah. logistical sense he's carrying some of it don't get well, me wrong sure. you know right. he would have to yeah um i mean he's not lazy yeah and he's, he's obviously a, got where he is yeah. through hard work he's a gentleman he's not gonna let her carry oh, the whole thing what a gentleman exactly lost river aside oh yeah is that what that movie it? was called? Lost River? Yeah, it was yeah. Lost River. I did not, uh, I did not see it. You, oh, you, you saw should. It? Should I? It's diabolically bad. Ugh. Really, it's exceptionally bad. It's so bad that I'm advising you to see it. I am working my way through Captain Fantastic. Have you seen Captain Fantastic? Yeah, I love Captain Fantastic. You're incorrect. Okay. Uh, it's just... Uh, I, I have a problem with smug films and Captain Fantastic is pretty damn smug that that's true it is it is pretty smug I watched it on a train and it was good train fare it's amazing how often that makes a movie easier to forgive uh like I (laughs) I enjoyed I think I enjoyed Adventures of Tintin because I saw it on a plane and uh did not care for it much uh in retrospect but at the time I was like hey this is kind of fun for a five inch screen in front of me yeah yeah I wish I had seen Tintin on a plane Instead of in a cinema with money that I paid to be in that yeah, cinema to watch true. it. Well, I paid money. That's was... true. But you got something else out of the experience. That's true. Presumably. Yes, I got a trip to New Zealand. So oh. that was nice. Um, and then on the on the way back, hey, I got to, oof, I watched that and Gangster Squad. Oh. So, was not the, hey, well, the flight back wasn't great. Hey, well, that brings us back to Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. You That's know, right. The th- second of their... Of their collaborations? There's... Because uh, Crazy, Crazy Stupid, Stupid Love, Love, which is a delightful film, I, I think. And that one I actually didn't see. Yeah. Well, because I saw it on the back of I Love You, Philip Morris, which I thought was really funny. I didn't see that one either. Well... Who directed that? The... There's two of them. John Requois and Glenn Ficarra. Okay. That, if those are not their names, uh, I apologize to anyone that cares. They sound classy. Oh, they are. I mean, they did do, they, they did do, what was that movie with, it was with Will Smith, the pre-Suicide Squad, Will Smith, Margot Robbie movie, Focus, was it called Focus? Oh yeah, it, I like that movie. I did not. That like, was a movie that I wish I hadn't seen. There are a lot of things about that movie I like. The primary, you know, it's, the two of them are, are charming as always. Um, I really, I really like, I like, you know what, I like the scene with B.D. Wong. Right. That whole scene is, is really well orchestrated and I'm a sucker for like a good con scene i'm a sucker for bd wong sure i don't know if i don't know if i'd say that oh well your loss i enjoy him when he is good not to imply he's bad but there but he's not he doesn't get characters like that very often no and uh and he was that year he was in the running for uh for the bruce mcgill and the insider award for best performance under 15 minutes bp uh but he he got edged out not enough of our contributors saw it which was a edged out by who? Oh, I don't even remember. That was a couple years ago now. But, <laughs> right. uh, a lifetime ago. I think it might have been Adam Pearson from uh, from uh, Under the Skin. Oh, which I think I'd, I'm fine with that. I, I'm very fine with that. But um, so here's listeners. Here's what happens when I talk with Dave. Uh, we've covered in the area of 25 topics in the last. Wow. 20 minutes. This conversations fly by. We don't say anything really of any substance, but we do cover a lot poorly. 
Sure. So, but that's what being film lovers is all about. I that's think. that is uh, that was theoretically what this podcast was supposed to be was emulating the type of conversations that David and I had in college, and I guess that's quite literally what I am doing now, because uh, you and I are in. It's weird to say in college when you're in uh, in grad school. Yeah, but technically I'm in a college. Yes, uh, we don't really use the word college. Right. That kind of means something different. I'm at I'm at university. Yeah, I've heard that before. I guess that's fine. It sounds classier. Oh, it yeah, it definitely does. So, okay, back to the initial question. Sure. You are 25. I'm, <laughs> I'm 25. I was born in 1991 in South Africa. Okay. That's really where we'd... Good movie year. Oh, yeah, very is, good that's, movie year. Yeah. So, yeah, I was born in Cape Town, which mm. is where I grew up. Mm. So uh, it's really not that significant that I was just born there. I don't need to isolate that fact. I stayed there for mm. a while. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I got into movies pretty young. My parents mm -hmm. never really limited movie or TV time for me. Yeah. Um, and I think it's probably lucky then that I turned out to be someone that just gravitated towards, I don't know. I, I didn't really ever watch things mindlessly and I read a lot of books. Yeah. So I just kind of, I wanted to take everything and I wanted to watch everything and read everything. Um, and so, yeah, so... I the first movie I can remember seeing is Toy Story. Okay. Uh, so in terms of you know how <laughs> that look on your face. So I was trying to suppress it. So in terms of how fandom kind of uh, correlates, that is you know those kinds of movies are still yeah. huge, and it's well documented. Anyone that knows me, that my life thus far has really been dictated by my love for Star Wars. Right. Okay. So. That is something we'll probably come, we, we'll definitely come back to because, um, you know, a standard question, a standard icebreaker question in class, and I'm no different in my uh, TA section uh, for film history is, what's your name, where are you from, and what's your favorite movie? Sure. And, and you said Star Wars, uh, and you said it fairly apologetically. Well, usually I wouldn't say Star Wars. Usually I would give the third man as the answer. There's nothing wrong with that. So, yeah. Uh, but in that moment, but again, you said like you were, like you were admitting something. You're like, well, it's, I, you know what? I think it's, I think it's probably Star Wars. <laughs> it's like, you said it as though it were, that it needed an apology or an apologetic tone. Well, it's not so much that. It's just that I don't really, I don't really think of Star Wars as being a movie. So I feel guilty giving it as an answer because I don't ever really compare it to other movies. You know, my favorite anything in the world is Star Wars. Um, yeah, no, I definitely understand what you're saying. Uh, in it, to, because up until recently, as listeners know, my favorite film was Citizen Kane. Now that's one that came with an apologetic tone. I didn't know that was a recent development. Did yeah, two, uh, yeah, like 2013 is when it when Nashville. Was that the it first out. time you'd seen Nashville? No, I saw Nashville. I saw. Sorry, this is a, saw Nashville look, in 1875. This, which is odd, because that's uh, 100 years before it came out. Um, good call on the year. Uh, no, this uh, I do try to. What I'm about to say might explain some things, but I'm choosing to not let it. I happened to see it the day my dad died. Uh, I was in school, and that is the film that, based on time frame, that was the film I was watching when he died. Uh, and But I loved the movie. I thought it was amazing. And that 
it being t tied to that, I don't think has anything to do with why I love the film so much. Um, and because it just, it's one of those films that I saw and I thought this is, there's something really special about this film. And then it just grew and grew and I would make my top hundred every two years. And I think it first showed up as number 30. And then every time I made it, it would go up and up and up. And then uh, in 2012, I made my list and it was at number, I think four. And I, I made my list, a uh, I made my top hundred again, but a year early because I knew something is, there's been a, there's been a, sh a shift. That's kind of beautiful. I think so. Uh, and that tends to happen with movies that make it, that kind of worm their way into my top 10 is their movies that I loved. And if you look at the list, they show up usually in the thirties or forties and then just work their way up. Yeah. Um, like Verkmeister harmonies, for example, oh, which yes. is a marvelous film. Um, and so citizen Kane was my favorite movie for a long time. And it's a wonderful film, a perfect film that still is somehow. Cause I tend to think of when I think of a movie that is perfect, I think of one is actually kind of cold. It's, it's like so perfect that it doesn't actually, it doesn't need you. Right. You know, it doesn't, that's a good way of putting it. It doesn't welcome you in. Uh, and Kane is enigmatic uh, and, and elusive. You're on last name terms, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. I get Charlie. Charlie Kane is what I, yeah, what I call him. Um, there is a man, a certain man. And for the poor, you can be sure that he'll do all he can. <laughs> it's neither here nor there. Um, I'll give you five. I'll, I'll bet you five. You're not alive. If you don't know his oh, name, it's Kane, oh, by the way. Um, I know that I know that song just as much for that white stripe song about Citizen Kane as much as the film itself. But, um, but yeah, and but that's a film that it doesn't necessarily welcome you in, but there's there it's so ambitious in its theme that it it's one of those rare to me, one of those rare perfect films that also you can continually engage with as opposed to, okay, this is a perfect film, I will just put it up on this shelf and not deal with it ever again. Right, yeah. Um but yeah, and so in film school in, you know, back in my first film school, um, when I said Citizen Kane was my favorite film, like I had people rolling their eyes. I would have probably done the same yeah. thing. Yeah. You know, um, and in that same way, I'm sure that you've gotten that it, when you, the fact that you have the third man, but it's actually star Wars. Like yeah. you have your coping title to show that like, no, 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 I'm, I know film. It's fine. But you've got, but when it's, a, it's actually star Wars. Yeah. I mean the third man, if I'm, if I'm looking at like individual films that I can remember watching, because I don't remember seeing Star Wars. I don't remember the first time I watched yeah. it. You know, my earliest memories are of me knowing everything that happens. Yeah. So it's just way deep the fuck down in there, you know? Now, when you say Star Wars, do you mean... I mean... The 77 I mean, New Hope, or do you mean like just those... I mean those... the first three films. Okay. Right. right. That's what I figured. Uh, in order of release, not in terms of chronology of the Star Wars universe. Sure, sure. Uh, those three, and I, you know, I still have my, my VHS copies uh, from when I was a kid, which somehow are, I mean, they're playable. I don't yeah. know if I'd play them for guests, but they're playable. Um, but in terms of me kind of realizing that I love film, yeah. The Third Man, I think, is probably the biggest, because Star Wars really kind of predates that. And when I was a kid, I would kind of, uh, you know, I would pick up 
home movie cameras and make movies with friends and yeah. parents and I would kind of rope in people that I had around me and that really comes from Star Wars so my love for movies comes mm -hmm. from Star Wars yeah and and that's what I mean when I talk about like the the certain universality of film love is the story you just told is my story as well I, I loved I, I grew up in a in a in South Africa. I grew up, yeah, it's, isn't that weird? And I, I worked hard to get rid of that accent, and this is where I arrived somehow. Um, but no, I grew up in a, in a family where, despite being in a Christian community, my parents were big movie people, and they, they didn't necessarily, necessarily let us just like watch movies willy-nilly. I mean, obviously, they cared about like nudity and too much violence and that sort of thing. But after a while, there's like, eh, you're old enough, and we trust you. Just watch whatever you want. Um, and so, and then, yeah. I got a camera for uh, for my 16th birthday, and I immediately made a, a, a Night of the Living Dead parody, and I shot <laughs> yes. it in black and white and that kind of thing. And it was – that's just what people do. Like, And now in my case, I moved – many years later, I moved away from film – from any kind of film production, and I just re returned back to just a love of film. Uh, but I know that you are still interested in film production along with, you know, film theory and that sort of thing. Yeah. And my undergrad was a directing mm -hmm. um, BA. Yeah. So, so the last kind of short film that I really made was for that degree, because since then I, I moved more towards writing, which I think mm -hmm. is my sort of first love, hmm. um, which I'm doing more now. But part of the motivation of coming to LA was, you know, coming to spend time here and making movies here. You yeah. know, it's an experience that, especially because I, when I found out that I had a scholarship to go to UCLA, it was it kind of made sense to sort of spend the second half of my twenties doing that. And then we'll yeah. see, we'll see where I am in a few years, if I'm still capable of dreaming or if LA has beaten the idealism out of me. I think by being in the academic environment, I think that's en enough of a bubble. <laughs> I think you're going to be okay. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, now, it occurs to me, actually, that we, we skipped over... This is my fault. I didn't look at my phone. But uh, we skipped over something I wanted to talk about very briefly. And so we will get back to you in a moment. But you're welcome to, to weigh in on this. Uh, yes, there are a lot of, there's a lot of political turmoil going on right now. The thing that I'm actually most sad about is, of course, the passing of Miguel Ferrer at age 61. So he's a fairly young guy. Um, and uh, he was uh, one of my I'm sorry to, to so to shift so jarringly, but I wanted to talk about this. this it's a thing that we do from time to time is, is when a often when a character actor uh, or actress uh, passes away that that shaped the kind of shaped who we who we are. Uh, as uh, lovers of film, or David myself, because I know he also was a big fan of Miguel Ferrer. Um, we like to comment on it because Miguel Ferrer was a guy who, and I don't say this with any uh, malice or anything like that, but he was never in danger of even being nominated for an Oscar. I think, Maybe, that's, I think that's entirely fair. Yeah, and that's not his fault, and it's not that he was a bad actor, and it's not even that he was given... Uh, forgettable roles, not at all, but it's just, you know, up until Whiplash, J.K. Simmons was the same, you know, up until The Visitor, like uh, Richard Jenkins was was the same. Just these these character actors that, you know, um, often bald. <laughs> I just I just looked at three of them um, and and they just bounce from they often bounce from TV to film and back again. And 
they might pick up like a random Emmy nomination or something like that. But as far as the Oscars, they're just kind of outside of that. And because of that, they, they tend not to be really remembered that much. But Miguel Ferrer was just this dependable film presence. Uh, I, I mean, I feel like he, he really sort of personifies that person that if I show anyone a picture of him, yes. they'll go, oh, it's that guy. It's that guy. Yeah. That's the, yeah. Uh, and, but I remember, uh, I think my favorite performance of his, well, I mean, Twin Peaks is probably it, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but Traffic, I think he's pretty great in Traffic. Yeah. Uh, because. Tragic. What was that? I think he's pretty tragic in that movie. I think he is too. And when you look at what his character is and what his character is required to do, Traffic is a remarkably cynical film. And he is one of the only person, one of the only characters that is actually allowed to verbalize that cynicism. So that's hard to do. It's hard to play that and not seem like, hey, I'm declaring theme. Everybody pay attention. But he had a way, A, of delivering sarcasm and cynicism in a yeah. way that was totally believable. Um, but also... Uh, that seemed to spring from him and not from the writer. Yeah, and I think it also, certainly in that movie, there's the scene sort of towards the end where he gets room service. Right. Um, you know, I know the movie came out, what, like 17 years ago, but I, yeah. I don't want to spoil it for anyone. <laughs> yeah. But there is that scene and that speech that he gives, you know, about like your job is pointless. Yeah. Uh, to, uh, is it to Cheadle? Uh, yeah, that, you know, it doesn't come across as anything except kind of painful, you know, yeah. he's, he's found himself in this kind of life that he probably wanted, but he's in a position where he has no choice, you know, yeah. he, and he's kind of lashing out. And by the end of the movie, I think I, I just feel sort of pain for him more yeah. than anything. Yeah. Because in a way he and Don Cheadle are very similar. They're not so different. He and he, um, <laughs> but, uh, because they're both like sergeants in this war. Yeah. They're the ones that are going to get killed or they're the ones that are going to get fired or arrested or something like that. Um, as opposed to the higher ups, you know, you're, you're Stephen Bauer or I'd say you're Michael Douglas, um, who they are fairly untouchable. They can just, they can wage this war and it's never going to touch them. Yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, there definitely is a, a tragedy that uh, these two guys, Don Cheadle and Miguel Ferrer like clearly hate each other as much as they do. And yet they are so remarkably similar. And, and Miguel Ferrer has to deliver these lines that are meant for the audience as well, as we talk about the drug war and he's supposed to make us think without immediately having us realize that the filmmaker or the screenwriter is making us think. And I think he does that wonderfully. And then, you know, he, as far as film goes, he's amazing in RoboCop oh, yeah. and he's a, he's a delight. Uh, but I think that for film people, oddly enough, it's his TV part as Albert Rosenfeld in yeah. Twin Peaks that, that like is the, the pinnacle of who he was. Uh, I'm sure so many people after he passed away immediately looked up his speech about being a, a naysayer and a hatchet man and oh, the yes. fight against uh, uh, violence and that sort of thing. Um, and it's a really, I love you, Sheriff. Truman. I love you. And puts <laughs> on his sunglasses and <laughs> yeah. walks away. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it is a bummer. And, and also th this may sound strange, but he was a guy that, um, was sort of on the list of people I would have liked to get on the show. And I think I could have gotten on the show. Um, Except he was always, I think I might have actually emailed his publicist many, many years ago. Um, but we didn't really have much of a profile at the time. So, um, but yeah, it was, uh, so it's, a, and what's more is 
his father. Oh yeah, the great Jose, Jose Ferrer, yeah. who did who did win an Oscar, um, and he managed to step outside of his out from under his father's shadow and be very much his own thing to the point that I think some people, if they know who Miguel Ferrer is, might not even know that his father was Jose Ferrer and might not even know who Jose Ferrer is. He's somebody that has not been really remembered. No, not so much, but you know, Serrano de Bergerac is a really good rendition of it. And he plays a very integral part in Lawrence of Arabia. Yes, he does. And I'm a big fan of him in the Cane Mutiny as well. He was, he, Jose Ferrer, I mean, of course, there's Cyrano, and he played leads in other films, but I tend to f- find him most effective when he's playing what could only be referred to as Miguel Ferrer roles. <laughs> right. You know, like, sure. he shows up for one or two scenes and just, like, blows the roof off the place. But, yeah. um, you know, if you haven't... You, you've seen probably a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, but uh, maybe you haven't uh, well, seen it in a while. Um, that, you know, one of... Uh, one of his kind of unsung roles is, and everyone should seek out the series Fallen Angels. Oh, okay. Uh, which is a phenomenal uh, sort of neo-noir anthology show from the 90s yeah. with ridiculous talent attached. Uh, you know, episodes have people like, I don't like Bill, Bill Pullman, I think, is in one. Mm-hmm. Tom Hanks is in one. Eric Stoltz. Oh, I mean, wow. Gary Oldman, Alan Rickman, like, and I'm scratching the surface. And they're no. directed by people like Soderbergh and Quaron. And Miguel Ferrer is the narrator in a lot of it. And he's in one of the episodes as well. That's, so if I can bring yeah. attention to some really great work that he did, and yeah. may I say, as an Adventure Time fanboy, he is the voice of death on Adventure Time. Hey, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. that's the thing is, he he also had a, a, a voiceover career. A friend of the show, uh, Marisa Marsh, was talking about him on Facebook, and then he was like, good friends with him and, and that sort of thing. And that's, that's something that I'm largely unfamiliar with. I knew him as the horrendously underwritten villain of Mulan, um, which I thought did not, uh, use his talent well, but, um, but yeah, I knew that, uh, but he did some other stuff that I'm largely unfamiliar with, but the idea of a film, uh, but a a narrator in a film noir series, that's about right. Yeah, it really fits. Um, but, uh, so yeah, I, I just wanted to mention that and, and it's weird to go right back into the, the episode itself, but, uh, but I figured you'd probably have something to contribute. Indeed you did. Uh, uh, Fallen Angels. Yes. Do you know if that's available? Uh, I have no idea. I suspect. Uh, I feel like with those many, that many people involved, it's got to be somewhere. It's got to be somewhere. But I don't. I don't know if there's a DVD release of it. Hmm. But I know that there are a couple of episodes on YouTube. All right. So now that we've said that in public, go out and watch them before they're pulled. Well, we don't have that much. Uh, you don't. We don't pull that much weight. Yeah. I don't think YouTube's going to. I gonna, don't know. Don't sell although, yourself short. I guess YouTube is uh, notoriously. I uh, think government in this country is about to get a whole lot more petty. So, you know, you might. It seems like a weird thing to latch on to. <laughs> yeah. Trump is a huge fan of fallen angels. <laughs> he could just be a copyright guy. I don't know. <laughs> oh, he, I, he seems like he would be. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and that's all the politics we're going to talk, at least for the until it comes up again. Um, so, okay. Uh, growing up in, in Cape Town, loving film, yes. Star Wars, it's a part of you. Um, it is it, What you said about Star Wars is actually what, uh, when, when you talk to Christians about their, their favorite book. Now, officially, we all say the Bible, right. but it feels, which is, which is true enough, but 
it feels like you can't even count it. Like it's the thing that governs you. Right. Yeah. Star Wars is the thing that governs. How can you begin to compare it to another movie? And, you know, just like a lot of people of faith that I know, I have trouble with Star Wars. Uh, You know, it's it's (laughs) it's led me astray. It's had it has its ups and downs. Uh, And also in terms of how I generally feel about movies now, Star Wars is. I think for a lot of people is a strange choice. People that know me, they're surprised to hear that it's a movie that I love so much because my taste in films is, uh, and my kind of politics of film, Mm -hmm. you know, I do kind of resent the way Star Wars sort of killed the seventies, uh, in a, you know, which was such a fruitful period for really kind of strong adult films in uh, Hollywood. You know, and it, it, I do think it no. it started and kind of ushered in this sort of blockbuster culture that we have now, which I don't love. But you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll try to look at it this I would say Star Wars sort of started it, but Empire Strikes Back solidified it. You know, Star Wars could have been a standalone film and it would have been this amazing film of the, of the 70s. Sure. Um, and all of the all of the fun whimsy of space that it kicked off was destroyed by Alien two years later. Right. But then a year later, you had uh, you had Empire, and then two years after that, you had ET. Yeah. And so, uh, so yeah, the 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 Lucas Spielberg thing, and then even Spielberg had Close Encounters, which I think was a remarkably mature film. Oh yeah, um, for, for sure. Same year as, as uh, Star Wars, but so I don't know if I would blame. Star Wars, I think, and, and Empires. Of, I mean, is of course, a great the wrong movie word. Well. It happened yeah. because people responded to this film the yeah. way that I have. You yeah. know, it, it Star Wars didn't impose this on the world. People fell yeah. in love with it. It's, I mean, uh, with Jaws being one of my favorite movies of all time, like Jaws and Star Wars, like that one-two punch kind of kicked off the blockbuster, and so many yeah. people would say, like, oh, so they're to blame. It's like. Are they to blame? Because A, those are two amazing films. And also, there are some amazing blockbusters out there. And if it weren't those movies, it would have been, it would have happened eventually. I think that's true. So, yeah. thank God that it happened with two great movies. Yeah. yeah. You know? So, at least then we trace it back to something great um, instead of something that we're deeply ashamed of. Uh, though you still clearly are ashamed to say Star Wars. Is no, I'm not film. ashamed. Okay. It's so, it's so, I mean, I still have, I still have all my Star Wars stuff from when I was a kid. I have really? all my action figures. I have, you know, uh, posters, clothing, all the merch. Now, do you see the original trilogy as one? Com- uh, I mean, obviously it wasn't conceived that way. Yeah. But when you say Star Wars, you're referring to the, I'm referring all to three. The, yeah. I've, yeah. I mean, I always say I've seen each of those movies at least a hundred times, at yeah. least probably way more than that so and i do tend to watch them in one go it's 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 actually Mm. quite rare that i will watch one and leave the other ones although that happens with empire it doesn't happen with the other two if i feel like watching uh star wars a new hope or or return of the jedi i'll just watch all of them oh okay i see you know fuck it Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what else am I going to do? Just the things I have to do, you know? Exactly. And you know what? Uh, never hurts to go back to your roots. Exactly. Because the yeah. things you have to do are probably movie related in some way. So this is a... Yeah, it's a refresher. A, a refresher. Um, yeah, uh, it is interesting um, because 
when I was born, there were only two of them. And then Jedi came out the next year. But by the time I became old enough to watch and understand movies, all three of them existed and I would watch all three of them. And so I saw them as one complete unit, as I think a lot of people did that were born or that were cognitive of things after all three existed. Because if you're going to watch one, you're going to watch all of them. To such a degree that even now I have a hard time believing that the Imperial March didn't show up until the second film. Yeah. It's crazy to think about. Um, to such a degree, uh, yeah, like uh, we were recording our commentary of Aliens and Wayne Fetterman was, was mentioning the Imperial March not showing up until the second film. And that was only a year ago. And I was completely incredulous, as was with the guest Aaron Neuwirth. And we we're like, what? No. Like, we we're angry that he would say such a hor- horrendous lie. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's it all it is all one one unit. Do you, but I have found even with the with the prequels. There was there. a Well, I guess you weren't alive at the time and, and neither was I really. Um, there was something of a backlash towards Jedi. Yeah. And I feel like in that case, I kind of accept the problems that people had. And, and I do think it's sort of the start of what became sure. the prequels, those impulses from Lucas. Yeah. Um, but there's so much other stuff that's great yeah. in it that there isn't in, I the, mean, in a lot of the yeah. prequels. Although the prequels, I will say, talking about my sort of evolution as a, as a film viewer, when Phantom Menace came out, I loved it. I was eight, mm. and I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I went to see it like 10 times. But by the time... Right. But by the time Attack of the Clones came out, I remember going to see it, obviously, like opening day, like the preview show, the yeah. midnight show. It wasn't midnight. I was still... My parents wouldn't let me go see a midnight movie then. No. But uh, it was like the preview the evening before, and I remember coming out thinking, like, that, that was not very good. And so I often see that, and I was 12, you know, so I often see that, no, I was 11, so I often see that as being like the moment where I had developed movie sentience, and I was going to rebel against things that were not up to standard. I wish I could remember the first film that I saw, because, you know, when you're a kid, hey, is something being shown on a screen? Oh, boy. Sure. Uh, But, like, what's, like, I'm trying to remember what the first film I saw that I thought, like, hmm... Not so good. Not for me. Yeah. Uh, I think at that stage as well, you really gravitate towards things that you do like. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You're inclined. You want to like things. Yeah. <laughs> wow. What a difference. <laughs> yeah. 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 So Here, you and I are on a podcast talking about movies. I'd say for the most part, we have retained our, our desire to like things. Yeah. But the temptation is there. I mean, it's rare. I will say it's rare that I go into a cinema and come out really not liking the film it's happened very few times i don't even know if it happened and part of that's because i i'm careful about what i view like Mm -hmm. i tend to you know know a a lot about movies i guess before i see them for better or worse yeah but i'm trying to think if there was anything in 2016 that i saw that i really didn't like and i don't think there was maybe that's also because it was a really good year yeah for movies um but you know it does happen occasionally Uh, I'm looking at you, Hobbit movies. I'm looking at you, Imitation Game. I'm looking at you, Now You See Me. Uh, I like the first... Well... I hate it so much. There are things I like about it. Um, And also, just like ever since I I was a kid, I'm a sucker for like uh, like 
a twisty, shitty movie. And that's what that is. I'm a sucker for, you know, twisty, shitty movies. But I don't know. I just found, like, nothing redeeming in that film. It's one where... And the audience around me were I were an audience of morons. I'm oh, sorry okay. to say this. I'm sorry to say that. In what regard? Like they were eating up the movie or they were talking with each other and stuff? They, it was partly that. I remember bef- before the movie, there was a trailer for Behind the Candelabra. Oh, okay. And people were like giggling when the two men kissed. It was like, oh, I was like, wow. my God, what, where, where am I? You're in a crowd full of people that went to see now yeah. you see me i mean south african movie audiences i are not fantastic i will say is that true yeah i mean it's not just it isn't such a sort of cinema going culture i don't think um so i think often people aren't that interested in seeing the movie or if they are there's not a lot of cinema etiquette it's been a pleasure coming to a place like LA where there's a lot of, there are a lot of cinemas that people go to because they want to be there, see yes. that movie. Yes. Um, I went to, I was at the the Beverly last night mm. and uh, that's a great example of a cinema where everyone there is there to have an experience, you know? Though every once in a while, you'll run across the person that seems unable to help themselves and they will try to convey to you to everyone around them that they know what they know this movie right so there will be an anticipatory laughter of something yeah uh, at something that is not inherently funny nor is it going to be funny it is a laughter of recognition to show like <laughs> I, I know this movie yeah we all know the movie buddy it's the new new beverly yeah well i will say that could have that could have happened last night because rolling thunder was the second of the two mm. movies what was the first the yakuza oh okay which was fantastic they were both great i have to say uh but Rolling Thunder, you know, lived up to expectation. And I was kind of expecting that people could have been, could have done that. Because yeah. it, especially at a cinema like that, it's one of the favorites. Uh, yeah. But nobody did. People respected that there were some of us that had not seen it. Yeah, it's by and large, I'd say that it's it's a good crowd. Yeah. Um, and and I think it also depends on on what the movies are. Like Rolling Thunder is, is a film that, yes, there are people that know about it. I haven't seen it. Um, but I know that it has a certain cult following. Yeah. But I think the people that love it are just excited that other people are seeing it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so okay. Uh, now we, we're at 50 minutes wow. already. That Flies by. Um, and so I want to move into, uh, you know, one thing that, that I've become fascinated by uh, being part of grad school is because you and I were in a, a class called Text in Context, um, and everybody had to not pitch, but everybody had to sort of present what their final paper was going to be about. And I mean, almost invariably, every topic I found fascinating, um, even the ones that I'm like, I I couldn't care less. <laughs> I, it was fascinating that someone cared that much, you know, um, because and and. Anytime I'm talking to somebody new uh, that I'm in a class with and I say like, oh, well, what, what are you working on? And they say like, oh, I really like this. And I was like, I didn't even know that was a thing someone could be interested in. Right. Not because I think it's boring, but because I just didn't even know. It's, all, it's an entire frame of thought that I, that I don't have. And, and that, that actually kind of spawned uh, or, or spurred me on to create this BP Masterclass series uh, 
because, you know, I have my, we all have our blind spots and the fact that Dave and I went to school, have known each other for a number of years, went to school at the same time. We have similar blind spots and, you know, and so I want to try and have people on and have them talk about the things that they find fascinating uh, because there might be a listener out there that either a already knows about this and is frustrating the people frustrated that people aren't talking about it or B would love this stuff and doesn't even know it yet. And so, um, so I wanted to, and I'm also fascinated the, at the, the fact that star Wars brought you into film and you arrived at some of the films that you, uh, are keen to write about and talk about. And so let's, I'm sorry to put it only in terms of final paper, but let's, yeah. let's look at it that way. What, uh, what, what would you say your, uh, how would you sum up your final paper for text and context? For text and context, it was about a filmmaker called Jama Fanaka who came out of UCLA in the 70s at a time when UCLA was producing this kind of first generation of film school educated black filmmakers mm-hmm. who were kind of adopting the politics and the sort of aesthetics of of African cinema and third world cinema, but they were setting their films here and they were dealing with kind of contemporary US politics, uh, making their movies outside the system. Mm -hmm. But this one guy came through and he really loved Hollywood and he loved action movies. His most famous movie, uh, Penitentiary, which is a movie that I've encountered outside of my own research. That was how I found out about this guy. I Mm -hmm. went to a kind of midnight movie club in London uh, and they were screening his movies and it was really all about how his movies um sort of uh predict in a lot of ways the kind of world we're living in now the sort of militarization of america's inner cities and mm-hmm. the sort of segregation of certain populations into kind of little pockets where they live yeah and uh, i was kind of looking at it th- in the in light of police violence in light of where racial politics is currently in light of the fact that I, you know, I was writing about a president elect at the time, but the fact that America is probably about to, uh, accelerate down some of those roads, Mm -hmm. you know? So it was really looking at what his films kind of offer us in this moment. Yeah. Um, it was a fun paper. I really like his movies. Um, and I'm going to work on it more. And I used a lot of the theory that I use for my my sort of PhD thesis, yeah, uh, which I which is about different films, but uh, also looks at kind of race and economics and how cities are are structured and how they're run, yeah, yeah, and sort of where people are allowed to live and things like that. It's it's always fascinating to me when uh, a, a foreign director loves Hollywood, yeah, and then. They do. They're they're not necessarily trying to emulate uh, a Hollywood film, um, but the inspiration is there. I mean, well, the, uh, maybe the most obvious example being uh, a uh, Akira Kurosawa or something like that. Yeah. Um, or a uh, Godard, maybe. I think that's a better one because Kurosawa, I don't think politically had that much problem with Hollywood. Right, right. Whereas Fanaka, who is American, but he's a guy that loves Hollywood but hates its politics. Right. So he's trying to, which I I wouldn't use such strong words for me, but that kind of reflects me. You know, yeah. I, I do love Hollywood, but I'm someone that on, sits quite far to the left politically. And I don't uh, agree with a lot of the ways that Hollywood yeah. kind of presents the world to us. So it was a nice way for me to work through some of my own shit. 
Well, and what's interesting to me is that you you mentioned that he uh, loved Hollywood but didn't like this this other aspect of it. But I mean, even in the nineteen even in the nineteen seventies, when Hollywood was probably at its not even necessarily most left leaning, but at its most anti establishment yeah. in many ways, um, was that a thing that was he? Ref- did he have a problem with the Hollywood of the past or even the Hollywood of the 1970s as well? It was, it was of the 1970s as well. Okay. It was about sort of how people that looked like him still weren't really getting to make their own sure. movies. You know, it was still, it was still young kind of, uh, upper middle class white filmmakers yeah. still, you know, it was, even though they were rebelling, you know, the sort of studio system still kind of functioned. They were still studio mm-hmm. guys, you know, so they were still working within this this system. Yeah. And these guys that were coming out of UCLA were people that were, you know, more revolutionary, for lack of a better term. No. Um, they might have used the same term. Would his films fall, uh, in maybe even in a simplistic understanding of them, would they fall under the title of black exploitation, or do you think he would cringe at the idea of that? He didn't like it, but okay. but his first two films, uh, Welcome Home brother charles mm-hmm. which uh, yeah expl- uh, describe that one <laughs> everybody's got to see this movie it is about uh, a man who is sent to prison um and experimented on in prison mm-hmm. and sort of comes out an african-american man an african-american yes. man yes and it's a play on this kind of myth of african-american men and he comes out of prison and proceeds to wreak his revenge upon the people that wronged him uh, with his dick, yeah, which is sort of uh, fantastically large, and yeah. he strangles people with it at various points in the film, and it's really something to behold. Uh, it's a movie that I kind of can't believe more people haven't seen. Something like that definitely seems like. I mean, if if that's the most fox- exploitation he gets. Well, it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty yeah, funny, yeah, right? Yeah. Now that I say it out loud. <laughs> in like, my well, head, I mean, it's, that's as far as it goes, you know, as far as it could possibly go. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, it does seem like, you know, with with stuff like, you know, an obvious one like Foxy Brown being out there as as one that people know about. It seems like that one uh, would definitely even somebody like a like a Tarantino it seems like that's the film he would champion and yeah. try to get people to see. It's but it is quite a cynical film. It's a cynical film that I think really understands the politics of, you know, how police and the government impacts people kind of every day. Yeah. So it's not recuperating violence. It's not making these things okay. It's not making them fun necessarily. It's still a film that seems very deeply concerned with sort of social justice and with yeah. not objectifying, you know, women in the one mm-hmm. instance um, and presenting a main character that really doesn't want to be a part of this world at all yeah. and kind of resists it every way he can, but he's sort of tragically doomed because of who he is, because of where he fits into society. Yeah. Um, and it's quite a pessimistic film. I mean, it's got a pretty downbeat ending. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's it's so fast. I feel like this the 70s is, is the decade when you could have something that is very passionate about its politics and actually like has a statement to make and is, and is, and could be seen as like a, about disillusionment, both of the characters and of the, of the director. And by the way, it also has a guy who strangles people with his dick. Yeah. Like sure. the, it, it could be silly and have those other things as well. And, um, so the other one that you were talking about, uh, penitentiary, right? Yeah. That's his sort of most well-known one. And he's made several others he made that s- get, 
more strange. Oh, yeah. Because the first penitentiary is a relatively straight story about, you know, a young guy goes to prison, young African-American man goes to prison for a crime he didn't commit. And in prison, he discovers a gift for boxing and he Mm -hmm. has to kind of box his way out of prison. So that's, and it's pretty straightforward. It's a drama. But by the third film, he, it's really just gone totally off the rails. And it features, among other things, a a crack smoking martial arts wielding dwarf called the Midnight Thud, who uh, is sort of an assassin locked away in the dungeon of the prison uh, and yeah, so by the third film, it's gone totally off the rails, but, but it's, there's still fruitful stuff. I mean, this is academia, sure. you know, you still mine it for what it's yeah. trying to do politically. Although by that point, I think he was just happy to be making films yeah. anymore. And what, why do you think people, you know, I mean, my first, when I first heard of him, you know, even just now, I think you'd mentioned it to me before, but it was a while ago. Like even just now, even hearing his name, I assumed that he was not born in the U.S. and just and also like some of the stuff you were talking about, but uh, you know, I hadn't heard of him. I didn't know really anything about him, and I think that's the case with with a lot of people, even like people that really love film and might even enjoy midnight, you know, like midnight yeah. movies and cult film. What is it about? Why do you think he is not better known? Um, I honestly don't know that I can answer that. I mean, I. I know people that like Penitentiary. I've met people that know that film, even if they wouldn't know who made it or anything else that he did. But in sort of more kind of critical circles, he's not radical enough politically, you know, because his contemporaries that were making films at the same time were, you know, making stuff like Killer of Sheep and, you know, things that are really on the surface. You look at that and you go, okay, that's radical. That's a political film. Yeah. So he doesn't really fit in there. But at the same time, his films, I don't know, they never quite developed a life after Hmm. that initial. And also as his career went on, they kind of became sort of straight to VHS. I think his last movie was a straight to video movie. Uh, And that was in the early 90s. So... I think time has kind of gone by without that interest. So, I mean, and I don't know that all his films are available on DVD even. I think, I mean, hopefully they are, but. It feels like there's, there's gotta be like just one of the, there, it's fascinating to me that as, as streaming starts to take over, you actually do have more Blu-ray distribution companies emerging. Yeah. Um, And it feels like there's gotta be, there's gotta be one that'll, that will snatch those up. You know, well, there's a company called the uh, Xenon okay. that that uh, I know bought the rights to a couple of his movies and retitled retitled them with more black exploitationy names to get an audience. Like mm. Welcome Home, Brother Charles was released on DVD as Soul Vengeance. Sure, you know, and uh, his second movie Emma May was released as Black Sisters Revenge. So you know, okay, people have really played, and I think that might contribute to him kind of getting lost. Yeah, in the whole in that kind of era, there's nothing yeah. unique about his movies. They just yeah aren't really sold as what they are. I remember uh, I was mildly interested in uh, uh, like 1970s funk and black exploitation when I was younger. Sure, um, but like only like just kind of gl- off the surface, you know, like Isley Brothers and that sort of thing. But but also. I saw Shaft and thought it was like, ah, oh, this is actually isn't that good. Then I saw Superfly. I thought this is great. Yeah. Uh, and I saw you know Dolomite, which is sort of a joke. Yes. Um, it is. And 
Uh, he has a cameo in a couple of the penitentiary movies. Does he? Rudy Raymore. Yeah. He, he, that he sounds about up. right. Uh, and then I saw Foxy Brown. And then what is the uh, Truck Turner? Is that uh, is that the one with Isaac Hayes? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And, I, you know, it was kind of the same eight people that showed up in everything, uh, which is, you know, perfectly fine. And so uh, but I remember I worked at a video store in southern Missouri that had a surprising selection of black exploitation uh, in the 70s and and 80s and there was one called ghetto revenge oh, that yes. uh that was delightful and the and it was one of those things that like the box art did not it featured just like uh anonymous black guys with like uh machine guns <laughs> none of whom are actually in the film uh and then i saw those same like those same guys from that same photo shoot but in different poses on another film oh. that we uh, another vhs film that we carried again those guys weren't in the film. It was just like these three guys with machine guns. Hey, you got to They make posed a for a day and they got used <laughs> in a bunch of different movies. So, um, but yeah, uh, it does feel like, um, like this, uh, this guy whose name even escapes me now. Say it again. Jamar Fanaka. Jam- and, and he converted to Islam. So he was born Walt Gordon. Oh, okay. So that's, <laughs> there you go. So that's his, that's his <laughs> <Yeah>. real name. <laughs> Walt. Yeah. Not even Walter. Well, he might have been born uh, right. Walter. But he went by Walt for he, a while. He went by Walt as far as I know. I, can't, I can just imagine. I don't know when he made uh, uh, Welcome Home, Brother Charles. But like, I, can't, I have to imagine someone's like, Walt, I'm reading this script. <laughs> and I got to say, kind of odd. <laughs> I don't know, Walt. <laughs> just like, yeah, you needed to spice it up a little exactly. bit. Um, so uh, now, how, if somebody's interested, how would somebody find some? I mean, you've seen these films. You know, how did you find them? Well, some of them are on YouTube. Okay. And Street Wars, his final film, um, Netflix's DVD service, which still operates, yeah. has it on DVD. So you can get it mailed to you. And Street Wars... Was the that was the first film of his I saw. Okay, and that's uh, about this kid who is like at a military academy, and he sort of wants to clean up the hood. This is like mm-hmm. early nineties, and he goes and gets the f- sort of flying. He's in like the air force, and he goes to get the sort of planes and the like the gliders and stuff from the military base and attaches Uzis to them and sort of cleans up the inner city. It's great stuff. Um, and uh, the first two MMA and Brother Charles are, I'm pretty sure, on YouTube. Uh, have you run across, as you said, it's academia, and so there tends to be uh, a fair amount of, uh, for lack of a better term, patience with even the most outlandish topic. Um, to say where it's just like, oh, I see something of value and worth discussing in these films that might otherwise be seen as silly. Yeah. Um, have you run across any of that or is it mostly people being like, oh, interesting. And then they, and they just kind of are okay with you writing about whatever you want to write about. Or do they say like, ah, I think you might be reaching. Well, no, I think, I think if you can make an argument for something, you'll get judged on that argument. Okay. That's what I've found. And I've always been someone that's tried to turn the courses that I've done into what I want to do. Hey, you, I hear you. You know, Absolutely. so people have been receptive and sometimes it's worked out and sometimes not so much. But I think because I'm interested in things like kind of, you know, how sort of economics affects people and how cities yeah. are structured. And I try to ground what I do in like really sort of real yeah. research. Um, 
I think that tends to swing it for me anyway. How much is the stuff that you write? How much does that reflect either these films or just the films that you, that you love and feel most passionately about? Like what, like what genre do you usually write in or do you write in a genre? Well, I mean, do you mean with my like papers? No, I mean like screenwriting. Oof. Uh, well, I guess science fiction, I always come back to science fiction okay. and detective stories. I forget okay. who said that's the sign of like um, an autodidact is jazz science fiction detective stories, which is a pretty good approximation of things yeah. that I'm interested in. So you're a big fan of Cowboy Bebop, I would guess. Oh, you have no idea. Uh, yeah, I figured. You have no idea. <laughs> um, that's all of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess those two I kind of come back to. Um, okay. I do like crime stories, but... Um, I like character pieces. I like, I like, I'm amazed by screenwriters that can put, you know, this is why I like Manchester by the Sea, for instance, is so brilliant is I'm yeah. amazed by people that can compel you with, with, with people in a room, just somebody needs something from this conversation, like yeah. as basic as that. So I've, I'm trying to write more people because yeah. I think there's a lot of stylishness and a lot of flashiness about, especially with young writers, myself included, but when you come down to like, can you write character? Yeah. Can you write substance? Uh, that's something that I, I try to work on uh, as much as, as possible. Yeah. And even stuff, especially like detective stories, even though so many of those characters would seem to be two dimensional and seem to be, you know, archetypes and they are, uh, there's in the, in the best ones, there's more going on and they, and they really are character pieces. Like I personally believe that like when it comes to film noir and detective stories, people don't actually want to, people don't actually care about the story. Yeah. The story is very complex and serpentine, but the only reason it is that is because of the complexity of the characters involved and people and the characters are the ones that are going to guide you through this. It's why, you know, when I saw Maltese Falcon at a young age, that has like five, at least five amazing characters. Each one of them sort of governed by their own instincts and their own motivations and sometimes trying to be better than they are and other times just giving themselves over to what they are. And I feel like that's, and and I feel like you can always tell a film that that is operating within a genre that doesn't seem to understand the larger needs of the audience yeah to connect with with uh their characters and connect with their film and connect with their with the the writer director or whatever i think they because i remember i saw a film called um you know it was mid 90s everything was trying to be pulp fiction and i saw a film called things to do in denver when you're dead sure my uh when i lived in denver my next door neighbor catered it so that's how i found out about it okay Uh, and then i watched it and you know, it's stylish and, and there's some good performances in there and all that, but everything about it seemed like it was trying to emulate without ever actually understanding. Yeah. Uh, it didn't understand what made Pulp Fiction work. Um, it just emulated its style as though that's the only thing people cared about. But it's like, no, well, like, that's in why, the end. That's why it never worked for anyone to like riff on, you know, Tarantino's because he's riffing. Yeah. On riff on a guy that's just riffing. You have to yeah. go and go back to the text. Like that's why he's valuable as a filmmaker is because he can connect you to so much yeah. other stuff. You know. Yeah, and why his stuff is rewatchable because if if something is just style, yes, you can rewatch it and you'll probably enjoy it. But the stuff that, but a lot of it is wanting to 
spend time with these characters again. Like I've, I don't even like, I don't even like hateful eight that much, but it's something I return to regularly because I enjoy these characters and their relationship to one another. Yeah. Um, and, and I also think actually the film is, is a lot deeper than it would have, that it, I really it enjoyed appear. it. I have to say it's, uh, the, I liked it the first time I saw it, but the, uh, the more time goes by, the more I like it. It's kind of the opposite that and inglorious bastards are sort of the opposite of, um, um, um Django which is a film that I loved when I saw it and I like less and less as time goes by. Whereas hmm. Glorious Bastards and Hateful Eight are films that I like more. Uh, that's definitely true. I think Django I liked, I think I like it the same amount, but I still don't, I don't love it as much as some people. And Glorious Bastards, I think gives like Pulp Fiction a run for its money is like his best film. Yeah. And I might even say it is his best film. I think it's his, probably his most mature film. It's where he's kind of, because yeah. Pulp Fiction, he's still kind of running around. It's, it's yeah. like so much manic energy, but in Glorious Bastards, he's really kind of got that all under yeah. control. Although my favorite film of his is, is Reservoir Dogs. Hmm. I have a huge poster of it at home. Uh, well, some friends. We all did when we were me. 25. <laughs> hey, maybe. This is a great poster, <laughs> Sorry. though. Okay, hang on. Sorry. That sounded really shitty because when I was 25, I had a big, like, six foot by four foot poster of. And it was in black and white, and there was Harvey Keitel pointing gun at Steve Buscemi when he's on the ground. Like, oh yeah, and my friends bought it for me. Like, it's when you're a film lover, and I would say when you are a male film lover, there's just certain posters you have to have on your wall. Oh yeah, well the poster is uh, it's it's the one of all of them, like in mm -hmm. a line. Um, but it's the script. It's the entire script of the movie written oh, wow. out that forms the characters. Wow. Yeah. So. That was, and I think that that was an early movie that made me realize, like, ooh, I like this. I like this yeah. thing that is movies because I was I was too young when I saw that. I wonder. I I actually think that his most mature movie, although maybe the maturity is borrowed, is uh, Jackie Brown. Yeah, like, but it's Elmore Leonard. But I've read Rum Punch. He I think, does. I think so, Jackie Brown is better. I think so too. I mean, I love Elmore Leonard. I read yeah. a lot of his stuff. Um, I mean, it's pretty much inexhaustible. There's just always more. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's been dead for years, and it's still right. came, a book comes out every year somehow. <laughs> um, but Jackie Brown, I feel like, uh, has less of that kind of craziness. That right. to me is pulled back to sort of the other end of that. Even though, again, it's a movie that I really like. Right. Um, I think. You don't really find a Max Cherry in really any of his other movies. No, no. You that is a rare don't. character and one that honestly, if it weren't for Elmore Leonard, it might not exist. Yeah. You know? um, I think he, it would be interesting to see him adapt something again. He's only adapted one well, thing. Well, he's only got two movies left, you know, so. Whatever. <laughs> he's, he's like Scorsese. Like he'll, he'll say like, oh, I'm going to, and Scorsese didn't say he was going to retire, but like everybody assumed he was going to slow down, but he just has these movies in him and he yeah. needs to Scorsese's a guy I don't, he doesn't have the pride that uh, Tarantino that's has. true he isn't precious about his movies I don't think yeah. he'll just make something because he loves it I don't think he's interested in the way he's remembered you know do you think Tarantino is? <laughs> yeah hmm. I think and I think he's open about that I think he wants because he said like I want to have a filmography where there's no weak points I want to have a filmography right. where if you see that there's a Tarantino movie on TV. You can turn it on and no matter what it is, you know, it's good. Yes. And he seems to be very concerned with, because as like a cinephile, he seems concerned with how future Tarantinos will see him. But you know what? I actually, I think you're correct, but I actually don't know. I don't see that impact his films on the, the films that are made. I don't actually see that level of pride in the films. 
they might be self-indulgent, but it's because he loves the films, not because, and he loves his characters. I think it maybe too much what he does more than the films themselves. I do think he, so it's pick, what he does, not how he does it. Yeah. I think he picks his projects and the order in which he kind of does them and sure. what he's feeling. I think that kind of comes out of where he feels. I think he thinks like, is this late Quentin? Is this late? Turn? Sure. You know, sure. He sort of sees how it's going to happen down the line, which I'm fine with. I mean, I, you know, I, as a, person of the age that i'm at like he was such a formative yeah. influence and i i have critical distance from tarantino now yeah but i can't watch pulp fiction without having my jaw drop it's so good yeah you know i wish i wish there was a flaw i wish i'd be like oh you're so indulgent and you think you're so amazing but you know what you really are yeah some yeah the the brilliant ones tend to indulge themselves and uh Thank God they do. Yeah, exactly. You know? um, yeah, when I think of Pulp Fiction, it's interesting. My absolute favorite moment of that film has changed over over time. And it's actually, it's, it is not merely Samuel Jackson's last monologue. It is, it's the turn on, it's the change on his face when he says, he says, now I like that beat and then but that shit ain't the truth and that this it's it's almost indiscernible but just like you see his face drop a little bit where he realize where he's acknowledging what he wishes he were but he's not yeah and what he wants and then he then he turns into what he wants to be but before you before he arrives at i'm trying you have to first acknowledge what you are yeah and it's a very sad it's a sad acknowledgement it's very heartbreaking and it's so small but you know, Samuel Jackson, you know, people make fun of like him yelling and, and just him playing his, his usual type of thing. And, you know, I get it. But I mean, he's always done his best work with Tarantino. Like, yeah, he just and that understands how Tarantino is like the definition of iconic. Yeah. Um, in a film with a lot of iconic performances. Yeah, for sure. But um, so uh, now we could just keep going. But sure. uh, I need to drive you home and get back in time for my wife to have the car. So that's. <laughs> So that's going to dictate uh, the the nature of this episode. But, uh, you know, we'll definitely have you back on at some point now that people have kind of gotten to know you. And, uh, you know, we can have you talk about uh, your favorite films of any particular year or uh, or a filmmaker you love. Well, you yeah, know. and especially, I guess, once we know where awards go. I mean, I feel like we know where awards are going, but some of them, I feel like we kind of Let's know. talk about that. We are going to be doing... Uh, 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 not a full episode, but we, I am going to have somebody else, uh, on to talk about the Oscar nominees at this point in a couple of days. Uh, also somebody that I met at, uh, at school. So it's going to be very exciting. I'll, I'll, I'll let people discover it. Oh, okay. I'll tell you off mic. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so let's, let's think in terms of, of, of Oscars. I mean, I think La La Land is going to sweep a lot. Yeah. It's got it locked down. I yeah. mean, there was a moment where I thought maybe Moonlight could kind of at least get best picture, but, uh, and I wish that were true. It is, it's my favorite film I saw last year. Hmm. You know, I hate to go with consensus. I hate to follow the crowd, but yeah. it's an extraordinary film. Um, as is Manchester by the sea, but right. La La Land is just, it's so easy to like. Yeah. And it's the film of those three that I think you watch it and it's the easiest to just go and sit in front of a screen and watch. And like when I saw it, I kind of came out and immediately I just thought, well, that's it. That's, that's best picture for this year. Cause that's what they want. Um, and I think director it'll take, 
hopefully not screenplay, though I wouldn't be surprised. If they really love it, I could see that happening. But Manchester Screenplay the tends to be the thing that they throw to the stuff that they won't give picture. Well, I, you know, it, it kind of reminds me, Manchester by the Sea kind of reminds me of when I just thought they can't not give it to Tony Kushner for Lincoln. And then they didn't. Yeah. And I know that that was kind of the dynamic of that year was different because Argo didn't take what La La Land is likely to do now. Right. But at the same time, you know, are they going to give it to the kind of zingy, snappy script? There is, yeah, there is a tendency in the Academy to, if they are going to embrace a movie as a whole, they will do what they can to give it as much as they can. Yeah. Like the Hurt Locker one screenplay. It's a good script. It's no Inglorious Bastards. But they wanted to, they, they do like to bolster their best pictures. They don't yeah. like to give it just, you know, like when Spotlight won picture and screenplay and that was it. Like it was the first time in what, 60 years that yeah, it happened, something, something like, like that. that. And so that's, they like to give it, give a movie as much as they can. They also like to spread things out. But when you have something like La La Land, which has the spectacle and it's and it's very watchable and it is ambitious. Uh, yeah, I think they're going to really rally behind that. But I think that they will. Because Casey Affleck is the front runner for actor, they might actually be like, OK, no, we'll give Manchester by the Sea. We'll get best actor. Yeah. And then we'll give La La Land best screenplay and then we're good. And then we've got all that going for us. Uh but yeah, and I do think Casey Affleck will win. I think it's between him and Denzel Washington, but I think it'll be Casey Affleck. You know, it's hard for me to decide who I'd rather see. Look, I, I did don't just actually, I did just see Fences. I don't yeah. actually mind which of those two it uh, goes to because Fences is a movie built around the presence of Denzel Washington's character of how that just yeah. dominates even the frames that he's not in. Yeah, you know, and he sells it. You know, he just yeah. is one of the kind of last really great movie stars. And this yeah. is, I think, I think it's probably the best performance he's ever given. I have to say personally, and I, I love him and I love other movies, but, uh, I think if he hadn't won two Oscars, I don't think it would be a contest. Sure. Um, but I think, it, I think it probably will be Casey Affleck. Clearly sort of the whole kind of scandal is that was around him is not affecting his sort of chances. Yeah. But I would say that, yeah, he, Manchester will get him in screenplay and I think Moonlight will get Mahershala Ali fingers crossed though I have a I wouldn't be surprised if it's Jeff Bridges to be honest you know what though it's and I love that movie that's in my top five for the last year for sure really well, Hello High Water yeah I loved that film I'm sorry it did not, it did not get a lot of BP's love which surprised me not as much as Screenplay, I thought it would and that I was thought it. it yeah I really thought it was gonna show up it got a couple of a couple of waitresses were nominated for the <laughs> Bruce McGill true. Award uh, as they well high, should be and I have high hopes for them yeah uh, yeah, as you should. Uh, so it's, um, yeah. And I think if there is a shoe in, I think it's Viola Davis, right? Like that yeah. is a guarantee. And I think if they'd run her in lead, which they really should have, uh, yeah. I think she'd have won there as well, but I'm happy for her to take anything home yeah. because it's also just addressing the fact that it's ridiculous that she hasn't won an Oscar by this point. I, the maybe the sole reason that I can't completely dismiss Suicide Squad is how great she is. <laughs> right. When I because when I first heard the casting, my first I was like, I don't care. But I know enough about these characters to know I'm like, who's playing Amanda Waller? Because that's key. You need someone that is just that is just tough as nails and is 
just a force to be reckoned with. So it's like, you need to cast her right. And when I heard it was Viola Davis, I thought like, all right, that's pretty good. Let's see how she does. And I knew she would do well, but yeah, she's very much like, you can you kind of need to get the need to have the impression that she could take on every one of these people. Yeah. It, like bare knuckle. She could beat all of them. <laughs> um, and yeah, and she is the, she's definitely, uh, definitely a lead. Like there's no question yeah. about it, but so, yeah, you know, all I the think, more reason why she would win supporting. Well, right. And I, I think it's the first time I can really remember where if everything goes kind of consensus. Yeah. Like I'm okay with that. I think, I think the movies, even though they're things that I might rather, you know, have them win. Yeah. I'm cool with, I'm cool with La La Land winning. I'm cool with Damien Chazelle, you know, winning. Yeah. It is the Oscars after all. And that's a movie that suits what yeah. they want. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't, obviously, I hope this doesn't need to be said, but it doesn't affect the way these other movies will be remembered. Right. Um, the fact that Moonlight exists, I think, is fantastic. Yes, it's su- it's such a neat neat doesn't sound right, but it's it's such a novel uh, concept for I haven't even seen it yet, but it's such a novel concept because it, it's it's about these two cultures that actually conflict more than people are aware of. Yeah, um, which is such a such a fascinating thing to talk about right now. Um, but yeah, and I do think that honestly, once it was once it was announced that announced that Moonlight would qualify for adapted screenplay, I feel like that's a guarantee. Yeah, that's either true. that or Arrival. But well, at the same time, like, it, it was I don't know. kind of a pity because I I thought oh, Arrival's gonna get this. Like that's gonna that screenplay. That's a great script. Everything about that movie is just fantastic. I mean, Amy Adams will get in, and so will um, Villeneuve. And oh yeah. So I'd you know that's nice as well that to see the academy kind yeah. of embracing smart science fiction which we need more of. Yeah. It's uh, it's so interesting. I think of science fiction as being very dry and it often is in its in its style. But when you think of like the like like the original Solaris or even the new one for that matter, but just the story behind Solaris and you think of something like a Blade Runner or maybe not so much 2001, but maybe even that as well. There, There is an emotional core. There's a psychological one, certainly, but there is an emotional core. Like it's it's people trying to, characters trying to, who, who are who are either missing something or they're dealing with something and they're trying to grab they're they're trying they're like grasping at anything they can and in these particular moments it could be like an alien race or a certain type of technology or whatever it is like maybe this will provide the answers i need um and uh yeah amy adams is not gonna win and she hasn't won anything you know amy adams i've just given up hope that the oscars are gonna do her a favor i mean i think she's amazing in nocturnal animals as well which i liked a lot more than i thought i was going to um, but I think she's so good in that. Uh, yes. I think she's capable of giving anything less than a fantastic performance. Yeah, and it's she. She will get her Oscar eventually. Yeah, it's just one of those things that. I mean, she made Batman v Superman vaguely credible. The fact that she came through that movie unscathed is. That's true. Well, I mean, that's true. Know, I don't know. Real. That's real talent there. I'll say this: I forget she's in it. And Which that, is the best right. compliment you can exactly. pay to it. That's to exactly her performance. It. Um, okay, so I think we'll go ahead and end there. Um, 
So, uh, listeners, you can uh, please do check out Battleship Pretension. Check out all of David's uh, very thorough uh, Sundance coverage. Um, and then uh, I believe we still have that survey up. So please do take that as well, because it does help inform what we're going to do the rest of the year with the show and the website. Uh, check out uh, Jason's film. I'm, I, I, I'm a big fan of it myself, and I think you guys would like it as well. Uh, you can email me, Tyler, at BattleshipPretension.com. You can like us on Facebook. Uh, you can uh, follow us on Twitter. You can follow David at Davey Pretension. You can follow me at Tyler Pretension. Uh, and I think that is uh, basically it. Can, so can people find you or any work that you've done uh, online? Or uh, I'm, I'm kind of busy thinking about what I want to put back online because i had right. i had a couple of things up on like vimeo and things like that but i took mm -hmm. it down because i feel like because it's been so long since i've sort of made something i felt like it wasn't really reflective mm -hmm. of anything right so so at the moment no but if that changes i'll accost you and sort of get you to plug that on air i'll do my best you know well you you won't have a choice really if i have my way so you know mm. all right so this is you're you're throwing down the gauntlet and now yeah I mean I don't like to leave things on such a vaguely threatening note that's fine I I kind of that's kind of how I live my life is being just vaguely threatening to everybody I know so well, I get it well, I get it then clearly I've immersed myself in the culture of this podcast yeah it is I mean that was a, an alternate title for the podcast was vaguely threatening <laughs> right but that wasn't that didn't scream movies enough no it so. didn't have the sort of pun pun yeah. quality yeah but it definitely would uh, definitely reflected the the tone. There's no question about that. Um, okay, so are you on Twitter or anything? Yeah, I'm on Twitter uh, at uh, Platicus Finch. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't give me that face. You know what? It's called Battleship Pretension. What room do I have to judge? Yeah, Platicus underscore Finch. Uh, I don't think I knew that. I think that's my first time hearing yeah. this. Do you tweet often? Um, I retweet more than I tweet. Okay. Um, I kind of use social media more as a way to kind of find interesting things and see what people are sort of talking about. Okay. But um, if I feel a compulsive need to voice my opinion, uh, because I used to tweet all the time, and then I realized that not every thought that pops into my head, I think a lot of men have this realization where they realize that not every thought that pops into their head is worthy of sharing. I have four Twitter accounts and three podcasts. What, what? are you talking about? Well, <laughs> sure. Uh, I guess that got super awkward. <laughs> but in any case, yeah, um, I do retweet a lot of like movie stuff, okay. um, especially as relates to my kind of areas of interest as well, which are uh, Africa and art and music mm -hmm. and cinema that kind of is coming out of Africa as well. So, so it's all Neil Blomkamp, right? Uh, precisely zero percent. Oh, okay. Neil Blomkamp. I mean, that's it's like Is the he only. Doing anything at the moment? Is he making anything? I don't know. What do I care? Yeah, I haven't liked his last two movies. I that's... hated Elysium, and I do not care for Chappie. I like Dev Patel. <laughs> so that's that's what I'll give to Chappie. Fair enough. That's a weird. I, I and guess, Matt Damon, you know what? So I'll, I will uh, say that he cast people I like in those two movies. I, I liked Elysium more than I liked Chappie. I will say that there was enough in Chappie that I thought was interesting, just from the the idea from a sci fi standpoint, like the transferring right. of consciousness and stuff like that. I thought was interesting, but um, I just think it's a movie where clearly no one said no. Boy, he, he clearly didn't bounce any ideas. 
about anything of anyone. I actually think the casting of Matt Damon, as good as Matt Damon is in the film, I think that's actually a misstep. The idea, one of the reasons that District 9 works so well is because he cast such an unlikely leading man. Right. Um, But I do, I will say that the, uh, the scene in uh, Elysium, when he's talking with like the automated, uh, like social worker, for lack of a better term, that's great. That's a really great sci-fi scene. That is that belongs in a better movie. That's true. Um, but yeah. So, uh, but you know what? When it comes right down to it, uh, Hugh Jackman's haircut is uh, it's, it's, unforgivable. That's all we need in uh, in Chappie. So unforgettable. I think you mean. I think I, I think it can be both. Okay, sure. So yeah. um, okay, so we will go ahead and leave it there. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Dave, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And we'll get you next time. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.